Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. Good morning. It's a privilege to be back in Fort Worth. Kendall and I have been with our family in the mountains of North Carolina ministering at Camp Greystone for the entire summer, really, and uh, it's a work that we've done now for the last five years. It's uh, a ministry that we are grateful and thankful to be part of, but we have definitely missed uh, being here with you. We've missed our home here in Fort Worth, and we're glad to be back and gearing up for uh, RUF this fall at TCU. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 20. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 19. It's primarily a parable that's normally referred to as the laborers in the vineyard, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And we're going to look at this parable this morning because my hope is that we might remember something that I believe we've forgotten. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of context about where we are in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has just had this amazing interaction with a rich young ruler, a man who was not only rich because of his his monetary wealth, but he was rich because of all of his good works. And he came to Jesus and he had one question to ask Jesus. He said, Jesus, I want to know what's the one good thing I need to do uh, to make sure that I have eternal life? What's the one good deed I must do in order to obligate God to let me in to his heaven? And Jesus, realizing that this man was completely uh, out, of ba- out of bounds with his understanding of God's economy and God's kingdom, replies on this man's terms. And his response is received with great sadness and, and, des- and despair. And the disciples are watching as this rich ruler hangs his head and walks away in sadness. And they begin to ask one another, Well, good gracious, if this man has done all of these things, if he brought all of these trophies and merit badges of good works before Jesus, and Jesus says, that won't do it, then what about us? And so Peter, on behalf of all the disciples, looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus... Little question here. Um, we pretty much cashed in the whole bank on this deal. We've been following you. We left everything behind so that we could follow you. And we really want to know what we're going to get out of it. Jesus, the way we see it is we've worked really hard. We've earned a whole lot. And God owes us a great deal. And Jesus responds in a very odd way. He looks at Peter and he says, Peter, and to the disciples, I want you to know this. You're going to have 100-fold return on your investment. Your, your investment is going to return at the rate of 10,000%. But the reason you're going to have such a great return on your investment isn't because of the reasons that you think. It's not because I live according to your rules, but it's because I live according to my rules. It's because I don't operate in an economy that's based upon merit. But the economy of God is defined by grace. We live in a world every day, even the world we operate inside of this church, is based upon working hard. We talk to our children about it's grace that saves you. 
Out of all the denominations in the United States that I'm aware of, the PCA flies the flag of all the solas, sola gratia, higher and stronger than anybody else. We say, by grace alone, and yet that's not how we live. We live our lives based upon merit. We teach our children to always do right. We believe in our hearts that God really does love good little boys and good little girls. God really does love us even more when we're good. But Jesus turns this kind of thinking upside down in this parable. He shows us that it's not about merit, but it's all about grace. Give attention to God's Word from Matthew 20, beginning in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong with what belongs to me. Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged, and crucified. And He will be raised on the third day. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's ask the Lord to open up our hearts to hear His Word this morning. Our great God and King, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is is trustworthy and true, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness that we might be thoroughly equipped to live the Christian life. Father, I pray this morning that you might make hard things hearable, that you might make the message of grace sweet again in our hearts and in our ears. Lord, that you might turn our hearts into grateful hearts. Lord, lead us to Jesus. Show us the wonder of our Savior, we pray in His holy name. Amen. Several years ago, unfortunately it's been many years ago, Kendall and I were returning to St. Louis where I was going to seminary after serving an internship in Greenville, South Carolina. And I remember going to church that Sunday. We still had the Penske truck outside of our duplex. We lived in this neighborhood, this cul-de-sac, where 23 other seminary families lived. And we still had our, our Penske truck to return because we'd just driven in that Saturday. And we were, we were sitting at the Kirk of the Hills that Sunday morning, and uh, Dr. Benton was preaching a sermon on coveting. Well, after we returned home, I, I received a phone call from a good friend of mine. His name is Greg Thompson. Greg 
was the RUF campus minister at UVA several years back, and now he's the senior pastor at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville. And Greg said, Rob, uh, I see that you still have your, your moving truck out there, and I'm wondering if it would be possible for us to, to kind of ask you to help us load some furniture up. Uh, we've, we have a, I've been working at the Sunshine Mission. It was a mission that basically ministered to people whose lives were bad news, and it brought good news into their lives. And uh, basically what's happened is the, the overseers of the Sunshine Mission have offered to give us some furniture. There was a warehouse that basically the roof collapsed in on it, and a lot of the furniture was damaged. And they said we could kind of come over and get a few things and wondered if you might allow us to, to kind of load those things in the Penske truck and drive them back to the, to the, to the apartment. I said, absolutely, Greg. I'd love to do that. And uh, so I drove over in the truck. Greg and his wife, Courtney, drove over in their Camry, and we pulled up to this warehouse. And I'm thinking, you know, it's probably going to be some pretty damaged furniture, some grungy things. And um, I realized at that point that there were some details that I had missed along the way, some, some pretty important details, because really the furniture in there wasn't so damaged. And it wasn't used furniture. It wasn't just like ordinary furniture. It was restoration hardware. It wasn't like restoration hardware. It was restoration hardware. And it wasn't a small warehouse. It was a gigantic warehouse. And it wasn't that they were able to get a few things. The person said, there was a husband and a wife, and they said, Greg and Courtney, they were all palling out. I'm just standing over there by the rider truck, the Penske truck. They said, y'all can have anything you want. You can have anything you want and as much as you want. I'm talking oriental rugs, all the trinkets and fans. I'm talking sideboards for the dining room, uh, kitchen tables and chairs, leather couches, club chairs and ottomans, the whole gamut of furniture that anybody can want. You can have as much as you want. And I was there to serve. And so I can remember grabbing the other side of the kitchen table as we backed it into the Penske rider truck, grabbing the other side of the leather couch as we backed it into the rider truck, the other side of the leather club chair. And I can remember thinking, this is either going to be really good or really bad. Because I was, you know, I'm a seminary student up here too. I'm poor. I don't work at the Sunshine Mission, but, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot. And our furniture in our house is pretty bad. We would love to have some of this damaged furniture in this broken down, dilapidated restoration hardware warehouse. And um, so anyway, basically, I kind of heard the person there saying, you know, Greg, this is only for y'all. And this isn't for anybody else. This is just for you. And so I loaded up the truck and drove it back over to the duplex. And I... Back to, uh, pulled down the gate of the rider and I began to grab the other side of the kitchen table and pulled it right into their house and the rugs and the, the couch and the chair and all the other things that they got. And I went home sad. I went home without a single thing, not even a little keychain from Restoration Hardware. And I was thinking to myself, uh, boy, I sure am glad, not really, that Dr. Benton preached a sermon on coveting. But as I've thought about it longer, I've realized my problem really that day wasn't coveting. It wasn't that I so much coveted what Greg and Courtney had. Um, my problem was that I felt like I deserved something. I thought, after all, Lord, you know, I'm a, I'm a poor seminary student. I've, I, I left the banking world to come and pursue a degree and a life in ministry. I've been working pretty hard for you. I've walked with you as far as I know all the days of my life. I can't remember a day I didn't know you, Jesus. I've been trying pretty hard. I've been working pretty hard to do a lot of good things for you. And I've just done a great deed for my friend. And after all, Lord, couldn't you have just at least given me one thing? I mean, maybe just a rug, maybe just a chair, maybe just one thing out of there. I mean, after all, I deserved it. I felt as though I was entitled to something. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that that's how we oftentimes live our lives to God. There's probably not really 
Maybe there are a couple of people in this room who actually believe that you can be good enough in life to merit eternal life before God. You might think that you can be good enough in life in order to atone for all of, all of your wrongdoing and that God would accept you into heaven based upon your works. But the majority of us certainly don't believe that. We don't believe that we can be saved by grace, I mean by, by merit. We believe we're only saved by grace. That the only way that we get to heaven is by grace. But we certainly do believe that God owes us something because of how hard we've tried ever since we've been saved. We believe that God owes us something for the way we live our life. That He's obligated. I can't tell you how many times in our own home we say, can we not just simply get a break? I get so frustrated with the circumstances of my life. How good things seem to happen to people that shouldn't get good things. And my life so often feels like it's oppressed. And that I'm always getting the short end of the stick. And I wonder where God is. And I want to hold God hostage. I want to say, God, it's time for you to pay up. I'm just like Peter. I want to know, God, what am I going to get out of the deal? I've been working hard for you. I've left everything for you. What are you going to give me? And my friends, I'm not the only one that thinks that. This room is full of people that think that. I mean, if you want to go to a church, the church is one of the primary places that you can be almost assured to know that grace won't be the primary message that's preached. We talk about doing right. We talk about doing good. We talk about being the right kind of people. We want God to give us something for all of our hard work. We are very well informed about how broken and how messed up the world outside of this building is. And if we're honest with ourselves, we are very aware of how good we feel about ourselves. And yet this passage says that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace and not of merit. That God's economy is solely based upon great grace and not merit. His economy is based upon this one-way love to the loveless and to the unlovable. His grace is this free and unmerited favor that He shows to guilty, rebellious sinners, just like you and me, and who the only thing we deserve is judgment and condemnation. God's salvation of us and our life after salvation, because we're always being saved, is only based upon grace. It's based upon His kindness and His goodness and His good pleasure that He shows us each and every day. There's nothing we can do to merit or earn God's treatment, God's blessing, God's favor towards us. And I want to talk about this wonder of grace this morning on three points. If you're a note taker, here you go. The three things we're going to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the surprise of grace, the sovereignty in grace, and the sacrifice for grace. And I want to say a good friend of mine, David Speakman, who's the minister at, at Davidson, helped me to formulate these points. I want to give him credit. I want you to see first and foremost the surprise of grace. The grace is shocking. The grace blindsides us and knocks us off our feet. It's exactly the thing we weren't expecting. It doesn't make any sense to us as human beings. Jesus tells a parable about this wealthy landowner. And this man has this vineyard and apparently it's time for the harvest to be taken in. And so this man goes to the, the marketplace of labor. He goes into the marketplace and he seeks to hire people that can come and care for his vineyard, who can come and reap the harvest. Now, he leaves his house about 6 a.m. in the morning and he goes out and he agrees to pay these workers a denarius, one day's labor, one day's wage. And the way it worked in the, because of the Old Testament law is this, that every labor, laborer was paid at the end of the day. Because they were poor and their life was completely dependent on getting that paycheck at the end of the day. If they didn't get the money, then there was no food to put on the table. These people lived from day to day. 
It says in the passage in the parable that the landowner returns to the market on three-hour intervals. He goes back at 9 o'clock, he goes back at 12 o'clock noon, and he goes back at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And each time he goes back, he hires more laborers and sends them out into the vineyard. And he, he, he agrees to pay them what is right. But the passage goes on to say that this man returns one more time at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, about an hour before quitting time. And he goes up and he, and he asks the people that are standing there. He still finds people waiting in the marketplace, these day laborers. And he says to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, verse 7, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. I mean, at, first, at face value, you might say, well, okay, that makes sense. This guy probably had a whole lot going on, a lot of work, went out and hired some people to come help him out. Apparently, he kept needing more workers than he thought he did at 6 a.m. But as you read the parable, that's really not what's going on here. You've got to realize, this man was probably a very wealthy man. He had a lot going for him. Uh, he could have had any kind of laborer he wanted. And instead of going to the, uh, to the people that would have been the first-round draft picks, you know, he didn't even go to the walk-ons. He went to the most unqualified people in the city in order to hire them on. These people weren't actually going out and trying to do anything about their life. They weren't trying to seek anybody out to hire them. They're just hanging around. They're hanging around the marketplace. These guys have been hanging around there all day long, apparently. They're there until 5 o'clock in the afternoon. These are the gamblers. These are the drunkards. These are the lowlifes. These are the unskilled, the unqualified. These were the most unpromising workers anybody could hire. If you wanted to know where you could go to hire the most unqualified worker, this was the place you would go. And there's not a person in this room who does that in their normal life. There's not a one of us when it comes to the, the chief part of our life, the business that we do, who tries to hire the most unqualified people to come and help us to do that. But this man does. That's the first thing that's shocking and surprising about God's grace. Is that God's grace doesn't seek... To, he doesn't come to us so that we can meet His needs. But just like this, this landowner, the landowner goes out to meet their needs. His, his over-abiding concern is to care for the needs of these workers. Who if they don't get work, they don't get money. And if they don't get money, they don't put food on their table. All of his hiring is based... Not on his need, but on the worker's need. Grace and compassion are the very concepts and characteristics that solely define his hiring, his choosing. He doesn't look for their ability. He doesn't look for their fitness. He doesn't look for their qualification. He hires these people solely because they have a need and he wants to fill it. But that's not the most shocking part of it. The most shocking part of it is what happens in verse 9. He actually says in verse 8, he says, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. That's a little bit odd. He wants the people that were hired at 5 o'clock to get their money first. The people that started work at 6 a.m. to get their money last. Foreman says, okay. says, And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. This is amazing. They put in one hour's work, they got a full day's pay. They put one hour of work in, and they got a full day's pay. Now, I bet they were feeling kind of like I was feeling. The other people were. I imagine the 12-hour workers were feeling pretty good about now. They were feeling a little bit like I was when I was at the warehouse, and Greg and Courtney were getting all that furniture. Uh, they were thinking, this thing is shaping up to look good. I mean, he said we were going to get a full day's pay, and it looks like we're going to get a little extra credit here, and we're gonna, we might even have to work tomorrow. We're going to get a little extra. 
And um, unfortunately, things didn't go their way because when, the, when the, uh, the foreman comes around, he hands everybody the same pay. He pays the one-hour workers the same amount as he pays the 12-hour workers and vice versa, just to be redundant. He pays the 12-hour workers the same as he pays the one-hour workers. He pays them all a day's wage. Now, if you're a Christian and you read this passage and you love this, then you must not really be thinking about it very much because none of us love this. This doesn't seem like a very good deal. This seems like a terrible bargain. This isn't how it's supposed to be. I mean, we've been logging in a lot of Sundays here. We've been logging in a lot of Bible reading, a lot of prayer, a lot of sacrifice. We could have been doing a lot more fun things than this. We've been doing all this stuff. We expect to get something back for it. We expect God to take notice, and we want Him to give us something great out of it. We don't want to just have something good. We want to have something great. We don't want to get what all the drunkards and the prostitutes and everybody else is getting. I mean, good night. They wasted their whole life away. We've been working hard. We've been sweating. We've been in the heat of the day. Listen to what it says in verse 12. These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. We've been bearing the scorching heat of the kingdom of God, and we expect to be compensated uh, equally to the work that we've given. And yet Jesus is trying to make a really hard point, but it's a wonderful point. And He's trying to help us to understand that just as this economy of the vineyard, uh, how it works out, and solely based upon grace, so is the kingdom of God. That God's grace is shocking. That it surprises us. It's not what we expect. That our citizenship, our entry into the kingdom of God, is based upon grace and grace alone. The 12-hour worker in God's kingdom receives the very same thing as the one-hour worker. The basis for entry for the 12-hour worker into God's kingdom is the exact same basis for the one-hour worker. That's how it is. Now, how does that make you feel? How does it make you feel that the way that God credits your righteousness, the way that God acknowledges you're standing in His family, you're standing in His kingdom, has everything to do with grace and nothing to do with you? How does that make you feel? Well, if you're somebody whose life is completely defined by bad news, I imagine that's the most marvelous thing in the world. You're like these one-hour workers. You couldn't believe it. But most of us aren't like that. Most of us don't like that. It makes me remember my first grade year. First grade has been a very long time ago, unfortunately. And I had a teacher whose name was Miss Marin. Miss Marin was probably the meanest lady in the whole world, I felt like. I could not stand Miss Marin. I have been bitter about Miss Marin for many years. I have not had a heart of grace or love toward Miss Marin because she made first grade miserable. Um, I went home and cried every day because of Miss Marin. She was, I was, in my, my recollection was I was a pretty good guy. I was sitting in the class. I was listening. I was studious. I was, I wasn't, wasn't causing problems. I wasn't disrupting class. I was doing my thing. And uh, Miss Marin never gave me anything but sadness. And for that, I was um, deeply, uh, deeply wounded. And yet there was another guy in our class whose name was Casey. Casey was not even... Cons- he was hardly, at that point in life, I mean, he was almost an insane type of a, a student. I mean, he was completely hyperactive. He was completely disinterested in anything that Miss Marin was teaching. He was a, a troublemaker. The last thing Casey cared about was schoolwork or, or listening. And so, um, you know, so this is what happened. Miss Marin said, all right, I went to class. I want you all to understand. Okay, we're going to make Casey a treehouse. Now, it wasn't really like a real treehouse. It was the corner of our classroom that all of a sudden became kind of 
Casey's penthouse. And what he got was this sectioned-off area of the class that was full of pillows and books. And Miss Brin said, you know, basically how this is how it's going to work. You know, Casey, when you just start feeling kind of like you can't listen anymore, you get a little tired, just walk back there and lay down on the pillows and read some books. I'm sitting here like, something's wrong with this picture. My mom told me to do what was right. Casey's doing everything wrong. He's in the penthouse. I'm at the desk. I'm going home crying. He goes home happy every day. Something's not working out in this equation. I received an, ex- an education, but I expected a lot more from Miss Marin. And um, basically, he was a one-hour worker, and I was a 12-hour worker, and I didn't like the breakdown. That's how we are with God. We think, we think God's like Miss Marin. Uh, we're working really hard. We're grinding at the bit. God's not, not acknowledging anything we're doing. And uh, all these people that are low lifes and unqualified and disinterested and whose lives are full of bad news and a bad resume, they, they, they're getting treated so good by God. It's not fair. God, take note of me. Brendan Manning says it this way. He says, We think salvation belongs to the proper and pious, to those who stand at a safe distance from the back alleys of existence, clucking their judgments at those who have been soiled by life. You see, my friends, unfortunately, the grace that was so good, that was such good news to you when you came into God's family, today might not be good news. You want God to take note of your resume. You want God to take note of all that you've done, all the good works that you've done since He gave you entry into His kingdom. And you want God to bless you, not because of His grace, but because you deserve it. But that's not how God works. A Baptist minister over 200 years ago named Abraham Booth said this, For divine grace disdains to be assisted in the performance of that work which which peculiarly belongs to itself by the poor and perfect performances of men. Attempts to complete what grace begins betray our pride and offend our Lord. Let the reader carefully remember that grace is either absolutely free or it is not at all. And that he who professes to look for salvation by grace either believes in his heart to be saved entirely by it or he acts inconsistently in the affairs of greatest importance. My friends, what Jesus wants us to understand is that there's no such thing as a 12-hour worker and a one-hour worker. We're all the same. We all stand equal in our need. We all stand equal in our rebellion, equal in our sin, and unable to do anything about it. Grace is for the wobbly and the weak need. Grace is for the people who are bent over at the back, who are broken down. People who know they can't clean themselves up. That's why the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes and the gamblers and the lowlifes got it in the, in the New Testament. That's why they loved Jesus. That's why they ran to Him. Because they knew there was nothing they could do to tweak their personality or to tweak their merit badges or to tweak their righteousness so that they might be presentable before God. They knew they were unlovable. And they were amazed, they were shocked, they were surprised by the grace of God that He loved them anyway. They knew they were a grave disappointment to God. And they were amazed by the fact that He loved them for who they were and didn't demand that they could clean their life up or that they should. The second thing I want us to see in the last two points are much more brief is the sovereignty in grace. The passage makes clear that the landowner is the one in charge. He's the boss. He's the one who sets the ground rules. He oversees his own estate. He oversees his own affairs. He doesn't have to check it off with the day laborers. He doesn't have to bargain with the day laborers. They don't sit down and kind of haggle it out and say, All right, well, all right, uh, our family's back home. They don't have any food to eat. 
We're standing here in the, uh, the marketplace. We've got nothing going for us right now. And so we'd like to make some demands on your, on your vineyard. You know, they, don't, they have no clout. They have no say in what this landowner does. The landowner is sovereign. He is the man. He is in complete authority. They can't hold him hostage to their own desires and expectations. And he makes this clear in verse 15. He says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? This man has the complete right to do what he wants with what belongs to him. And yet what's amazing is, is he's the one that takes the initiative. These, these poor down-and-out day laborers don't come to him. He goes to them. He goes to them in their misery and in their messiness. He seeks them out. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He doesn't wait for them to tell him about their needs. He goes to them and he meets them in their needs. He provides as he pleases, but he provides on the basis of their needs and not upon the basis of his own need. All the needs of every group that's, that's hired here are met. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand, is that God is on the throne. God's in charge. God's the one who, who seeks us out. God's the one who finds us. You see, if it weren't for God that He would initiate a relationship with us, we would never know Him. But God's the one that seeks us out, and He seeks us out to supply our needs and to satisfy us with good things, to bless us beyond our wildest imagination. He exercises and He practices. He has the right, and He exercises the right to dispense of His blessings as He sees fit, according to His good pleasure and according to His own glory. And the amazing part is God always gives us far more than we deserve. He always gives us far more than we earn. How does that make you feel that God's the one who decides, that God's the one who sets the ground rules, that God's the one who runs the show? There's no bargaining with God. There's no haggling with God. God says, this is how it will be. I have a brother named Brian. Brian is 22 months younger than I am, and he and I started a business back in high school, middle school, called R&B Lawn Care Service. Our slogan was, we work hard, so you don't have to. And, uh, but before the days of R&B Lawn Care Service, when we were just little young, uh, little boys, we would do some work in the yard at home and around the neighborhood. And, and we, I, don't, I don't know if, the, if there are such a thing as sweet gum trees in Fort Worth, but in, in Greenville, South Carolina, there definitely were. And our yard was covered in sweet gumballs. They fall from the tree. They're like the, shape, they're like the size of a golf ball. And they have pricklers all around them, kind of like dulled-off thorns. And they are not pleasant or fun to walk on or to pick up. But my mom and dad would hire us on, and we'd get the standard paper grocery bag. We'd fill the, uh, the grocery bag with, uh, with gumballs. And for every bag we filled, we got a dollar. So our, our lady down the street named Miss Davis heard that we were really good, really skilled at picking up gumballs. So she hired us on, but Miss Davis was much more shrewd than my mom and dad were because she realized two things. Number one, the paper bags easily break. Number two, they're extremely small. You can, you can fit ten paper bags inside of one black glad trash bag. And so my brother and I showed up over there. She handed us each a glad trash bag. We got down on our hands and knees because you didn't actually have to walk around her yard. You could stay stationary and pick up like untold amounts of gumballs. And so we worked all day long. <laughs> we filled those glad bags with, with gumball after gumball. And we came and we presented our work to Miss Davis. And she said, boys, i got something for you. Our knees were bloody. Uh, and uh, we were pretty worn out. And she says, here's a whole quarter, quarter for every bag. Needless to say, we never went back to Miss Davis because it was not worth the quarter. And um, the thing about it is this. That's kind of how we feel about God being in charge on the throne. We think God's kind of like Miss Davis. Here you go. Uh, I'm going to give you a quarter. I'm going to give you a whole quarter. 
whole quarter for all that hard work. And so we're thinking, this isn't a very good situation. Now, there was another figure in my life that was completely the opposite of Miss Davis growing up. And um, I've been blessed to know every single grandparent and great-grandparent except for one. I didn't know, my, I didn't know one of my great-grandfathers. And my, my, grand, my, my dad's parents are named Rob and Joe. We called them Rob and Joe. I know that's strange. That's just how we did it. We'd go to their house. First thing they do is take you to the grocery store. Get anything you want. Cokes, candy, whatever you want. We got to run, wreak havoc in their house. We got to go wild banshee all around their yard, all around their house. Eat anything we wanted. Watch TV. Stay up late. Anything we wanted to do. We, we just, I remember we would just be gorging ourselves on uh, peanut M&Ms and Cokes. And then my brother and I would look at each other and we'd say, we need to go see Mama Jane. We had already had a lot. Mama Jane was my great-grandmother. She lived across the street from Robin Joe. So we walk over to Mama Jane's house. We go in and say, hey, Mama Jane, hey, boys. She'd say, uh, you look like you could use some French fries. Use a bag of French fries, dump them in there, salt all over them, sit us down with TV trays in her den, and just give us a huge plate each of French fries. Unbelievable. You boys look like you could use some Coca-Cola. We sure could, Mama Jane. We sure could use some Coca-Cola. She'd go back in there. She'd get, she'd get this huge two-liter. She'd come out there and pour. I mean, my mom and dad never let us have it like that much. Mom Jane, you know, tall, the big gulp. You know, we're sitting there. We're drinking Coca-Cola. We're eating French fries. We just gorged on M&Ms across the street at my other grandparents' house who were treating us like kings. And then all of a sudden, Mama Jane would say, I'm not, this isn't an exaggeration. I'm telling gospel truth. She would say, you boys look like you could use an ice cream cone. You know what? We really could. We could sure use an ice cream cone. We'd walk back in the kitchen. Mama Jane would pull out these cones. Nobody in the world, nobody on the face of planet Earth can pack an ice cream cone like Mama Jane can. I'm talking mashing it down in there. And she knew how not to break the cone, too. She would mash it down there, pack it tall, pack it high, and we ate to our heart's content. And then after we ate French fries, Coca-Cola, and an ice cream cone, we'd say, sure was good seeing you, Mama Jane. We're going back over across the street. So the thing I, I think about is I never did one thing for Mama Jane besides eat the food that she gave me. I never did. I gave her a hug around the neck, but that was probably more to earn an ice cream cone than it was anything else. I mean, I did love Mama Jane, but I never really had much to offer her. And that's the thing that I marvel over. Is she didn't treat me well because of all the things I did for her. I didn't come cut her grass and trim her shrubs and sweep her porch and clean her house. And then she gave me French fries. She just gave it to me. Because she loved to serve me. And she didn't just give it to me, she gave it to my brother and my sister. She loved to love us. You know, it was easy to go over to her house and be at ease. It was easy to go to her house and be completely content with the, with the way she would treat me. Because I knew how much she loved me. And you see, that's what Jesus wants us to understand about this, this parable, about the kingdom of God. Is that that's how we're to be toward God. Because as he sits high and lifted up on his throne, he's not this mean ogre in the sky. He's not this one who seeks to do us harm. But the Bible says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Jesus loves to love us. He doesn't hold grudges over us. He doesn't say, Oh, remember all the bad things that you did. I'm going to shortchange you today. There's a great quote. If I can find it here. By Jerry Bridges. And this is what he says. He says, We fluctuate between castigating ourselves and congratulating ourselves because we are deluded into thinking that we save ourselves. We, we, flu- we fluctuate in life between being very depressed or being very excited. 
And we're depressed because we think we let God down so bad. Now He's mad at us. We're excited because we think we've done all these great things for God. And yet, as He is the sovereign one on the throne, we rest not in our performance, but we rest in His good grace. And that's the last thing I want you to see this morning, is briefly to see the sacrifice of grace. How much does this cost? How can God be so good to us? How can He be so good to people whose lives are so bad and so messy? Well, the thing we notice is is that as this landowner hired these workers, he paid the majority of these workers for work they never did. Aside from the folks that worked the 12-hour shift who earned a day's wage, everyone else worked part of a day. The last group only worked one hour, and the man paid them as though they had worked 12. He paid them for 11 hours that they never worked. Now, you can say, oh, well, probably not a big deal. I mean, this man, not a big deal. It was a big deal. This man, he he had an amazing sacrifice that took out of his own pocket in order to meet the needs of these needy laborers. He took all of the sacrifice, all of the cost upon himself. Before the parables told, as I said earlier, Peter asked Jesus, what's in it for us? We left everything to follow you. What are we going to get? And Jesus says to Peter, I got good news. You're going to get a hundredfold return. You're going to get a 10,000% return on your investment. But it's not for the reasons you think, Peter. Peter thought it was because the more he earned, the more he did, the more God owed him. And Jesus says, that's not, re- that's not the reason. God doesn't owe you a red penny. God doesn't owe you anything but judgment and condemnation. But the reason you're going to get a 10,000% return on your investment is because God is generous beyond your wildest imagination. And Jesus explains it to him beginning in verse 17. He said, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the disciples aside and on the way up he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus looks at Peter and the rest of the disciples and he says, My friends, I want you to understand why God is going to bless you beyond your wildest imagination. I want you to understand why God is going to give you, you, the people who left everything for me, I want want you to understand the reason, the basis, that he's going to give you a 10,000% return on your investment. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. Not just for your salvation, but for every blessing that you receive in life. The reason is this, because I'm going to die for you. I'm going to do, I'm going to pay the penalty that you deserve to pay. And all of my righteousness is going to be credited to your account, though you deserve none of it. Why? Because God loves to love us. My friends, one of the best kept secrets, according to Jerry Bridges, is this. It's the best kept secret among Christians. Jesus paid it all. Have you thought about that? I mean, just for one moment, if you get anything today, get this. Jesus paid it all. I mean all. He not only purchased your forgiveness of sins and your ticket to heaven... He purchased, listen to this, He purchased every blessing and every answer to prayer you will ever receive. Every one of them, no exceptions. You see, Jesus doesn't bless you parents because of how diligent you are in raising your, you know, raising, growing kids God's way or whatever. He doesn't bless you because of how diligent you are in all of your efforts as parents. He doesn't bless you for, because of how hard you work at the office. He doesn't bless you because of, He doesn't give you wealth and in prosperity because of how good a Christian you are. 
He blesses you solely based upon grace. It's all about grace. Jesus paid it all. Every blessing you receive is because of Jesus. None of it is because of us. We're beggars on the street. We have to be beggars in order to get it. You see, Jesus made an amazing sacrifice so that we could be blessed. Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, My friends, I'm going to hang on a tree in my God, my Father, who I've been in deep fellowship with for all eternity, is going to turn his face from me. Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsook his bleeding, dying son so that he would not have to forsake you or me. God turned his face from his son so that he could turn his face toward you, so that he could count you among the blessed. This is amazing. This is good news. And it's good news for people whose lives are bad news. It's good news for people who remember how deeply needy they are. That's why the prostitutes and the gamblers and the thieves and the tax collectors got it. And why the rich and the righteous didn't. This past week, I uh, received a voicemail, and this is what the the person on the voicemail said. She said, my name is Barbara. I'm from the Prize Fulfillment Center calling regarding an entry form that you filled out for a new car. Your name has been pulled as a winner. So first of all, congratulations. Secondly, uh, you will win one of four top prizes. We're not a telemarketing agency. We're not a timeshare. We're not a cold call. We don't have time to waste people's time. Please call us back ASAP. I'm thinking... I can only remember a few forms that I filled out over the last couple of years. She said it was within 12 to 18 months. I'm thinking, what do I have to lose? I'm waiting on an appointment. I'm going to call Barbara. Call Barbara on the phone. Barbara says, oh, so glad to talk to you, uh, Mr. Hamby. Um, Now, I don't know when you filled out this form, but basically, again, I want to reiterate that you have won up to a $40,000 SUV or... um, one of the four other top prizes. And basically, we're not a telemarketing agency. We're not a timeshare. We're not a cold call business. We are a travel agency. And so we want you to come in. There's only two stipulations, two small stipulations. You need to be there for a 90-minute presentation. And it's an X hour. And we need you to bring two forms of ID. One of them has to be a credit card. Okay, bingo. I knew there was a hook there. I was waiting on it to come. Bingo, bingo. So I said, all right, well, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. See you later. I knew it was too good to be true. That's how we feel about grace. If the world we live in, there's nothing for free. You know, there's no free. There's no free lunch. Um, and yet, that's not how God's economy operates. I want to share with you these words from a beautiful hymn. The love of Christ is rich and free. It says, The love of Christ is rich and free, fixed on His own eternally. Nor earth nor hell can it remove. Long as He lives, His own He'll love. His loving heart engaged to be their everlasting surety. To his love that took their cause in hand, and love maintains it to the end. And this is the most beautiful part in my mind, in my estimation of the hymn. Love cannot from its post withdraw, nor death, nor hell, nor sin, nor law, can turn the surety's heart away. He'll love his own to endless day. My friends, God loves to love you. His economy is based upon grace, his shocking grace. His sovereign grace and the sacrifice He makes so that we might be His children. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You shock us. That You shock us by Your goodness. That You don't love us based upon our merit or our demerit. But You love us solely because You love to love us. Father, I pray that You would burn that truth upon our hearts. It will change the way we see ourselves. It will change the way we see You. It will change the way we treat our friends and our neighbors and the world around us. Lord, we pray that the good news of grace would take over our world. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. fears away won't you chase my fears away